This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the Redbox podcast i'm matt chorley we're heading out on the road in the next couple of weeks uh, i'm going to edinburgh then glasgow then exeter coming to a cafe near you uh, we're going to be doing the radio show so come along and say hello if you want to um, and you can obviously come and see me live um, doing my stand-up go to mattcholly.com for all the details right coming up on today's episode as everyone scrabbles for desks in number 10 uh, the new team all seeing who can be as close to the prime minister as possible we're looking at the the power of proximity why where you sit is more important than your job title that's coming up on the podcast in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. Normally on a Thursday, it's night at the Marriott, but no Indian night today. So we've got James Marriott and Deputy Property Editor Carol Lewis. Uh, hello, James Marriott. Good morning. I bet you've never heard of the Taunton Times or indeed Ross Kemp. I have now. There we are. Uh, James, James Marriott is here for the columnist panel. No Indian night today. So we're joined by Carol Lewis. Morning, Carol. Morning. Um, have you ever met Ross Kemp, Carol? I haven't, sadly, but I do know who he is. There and we are. I know the Taunton Times, too. <laughs> well, you wrote a very nice piece about Taunton, didn't you, just the other day? I did, indeed. In the uh, in the property section. I can't... What was the hook for that? Is it... It's very popular? Or is the house, house prices are booming in Taunton? House prices. House prices went up 20% in, in the last year as people flocked to live around Taunton. Imagine, imagine what will happen to house prices when they finally put up the statue to me in the town centre. It will be... <laughs> It will be absolutely booming. Absolutely booming. Uh, now, sure talk, about that. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, James Marriott, James Marriott, let's talk about your column today. Online moral fury is often just envy in disguise. Explain yourself. Yes. So uh, this is kind of one of the series of columns that I occasionally write about why people are so horrible to each other on the internet, which uh, is a topic of kind of perpetual fascination to me. I always try not to be horrible, but sometimes people are horrible to me. Um, and I, I just sort of noticed in a few of the kind of recent scandals, I think a lot of what angers people on Twitter and on social media is not, I think it's not that they're often getting angry about politics. I think it's that they're getting angry about people. And I think one of the kind of major things that drives a lot of anger and nastiness on social media is people being envious of each other. And I think a lot of the times when people are envious of each other and, and, and are sort of angry, what they're doing is they kind of feel envious of someone who they think has a, you know, that they envy their, their their job or their kind of position or the number of followers they have or their kind of status or influence. And that kind of envy gets transformed into kind of moral outrage. So, I think, so people think they're really morally indignant and contemptuous of these terrible people. Actually, 
I think they're often just kind of envious of them. And I think that's something that happens all the time on social media. Um, what, what, where do people hold to you on social media? Why would somebody be horrible to you? I, I mean, it's absolutely, it's absolutely beyond me. But um, I want, but the most trouble I ever got in was um, I wrote about not liking working in a bookshop. And um, <laughs> I got, pe- people said that it was really... Um, you got, you, did you have a social media pile on? Yeah, I did. A massive one. People that's said that's it was most, really terrible of me. That's the most James Marriott <laughs> social media pile on. <laughs> Uh, that you could yes, it did to feel. It did feel. If I'm ever going to be taken down, it will be over. It will be over um, some horrible war of working at a bookshop that is hanging to meet my uh, nemesis. What, what what did you make of this uh, this piece, Carol? I thought it was very interesting. There was a study a while back, actually, uh, in America, and they looked at earnings. And what they found is, if you need, um, say, fifty pounds a day to survive, to give you all your comforts. If you're on 50 pounds and your peers, the person who works next to you is on 40 pounds, then you are happy. You are really happy. But if you are on 60 pounds, so you know, you've got more money, but your peers are on 70, then my goodness, you are really (laughs) envious. So it's not about total amount, it's about comparison, Um, which I think is really interesting because I think James makes the point that, you know, if if your neighbour has a Rolls Royce, you're less likely to be envious than if he has a car that's like just the next step up from you. It, it's all very relative. Um, but my question to James, having read his column, was if that is true, if, if the whole politics of envy that he puts forward is true, is how do we have things to aspire to? Because one of the things I find very difficult is our attitude in Britain towards entrepreneurs. So we're, we're all behind them until they become too successful and too rich, and then we we knock them down. So what what's going on there, James? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point, and I think it's kind of one of the slightly dangerous things about Twitter is that it's basically a huge mechanism, I think, for enforcing quite a strong level of social conformity. And I think one of the things that psychologically irritates us about people who are envious of is they kind of try to distinguish themselves from the herd. They try to get above themselves. They try to make themselves special and different. And I think. You know, in these kind of intensely social environments, we often kind of dislike that. And we're like, well, why can't you be like the rest of us? Why can't you kind of come down here with us and be the same and stop thinking you're so important and special? And I think that is one of the kind of slightly pernicious effects of Twitter is that it kind of gives this huge kind of, it has these kind of hugely socially conformist effects. People who do kind of push out and, and fr- in front a bit and are a bit different and maybe are a bit more successful. There's a kind of this huge weight kind of pulling them back and getting really angry about that, um, which I which I think which I think is kind of dangerous, as you say, for people who want to go and do interesting, interesting things. I think I, the other thing I said in my column was that it kind of goes both ways. And a lot of envy is kind of justified because not all the mechanisms by which people become hugely successful writers or massively successful um I don't know, you know, influencers or celebrities or whatever are fair. And also, I think people, often people want to be envied for slightly bad reasons, or they know that by being envied, they're going to kind of upset other people because they will be jealous of them and they will look at their Instagram account or their Twitter feed and think, God, I wish I was that person. And I think people who really want to be envied and go out of their way to show off on social media kind of do know that what they're doing will hurt other people and that in maybe a kind of subconscious way is sort of the point. So I think it sort of runs, we, it kind of runs both ways. In some ways, you know, some people who really do that are kind of get what they deserve because they have gone out to wind people up. <laughs> the point that you make about social media is that um, it's, it's, we're not communicating a lot of the time. It's advertising. And you say it's, you know, it's PR agents for ourselves. We're promoting our wit, sexiness, lifestyles, intelligence, careers. You said even you're guilty of it, having used your Twitter account to nurture 
Whatever small measure of glamour can ever be associated with the unpromising brand concept, James Marriott. Yes, it hasn't gone. Hasn't, I, I don't tend to focus on the sexiness aspect generally. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's probably a corner of the internet. Uh, there's a corner of the internet for everything. Um, Carol, reading it and then think, knowing that you were coming on, I was sort of thinking that actually our homes. Uh, you know, what they look like from the outside, the car that's parked on the drive, people taking photos of what they're doing to their houses. There's a big old part of that, isn't there? Is it not, it's not just... Because given how few people come into our homes, particularly the last two years, it doesn't really matter what your house looks like uh, on the inside. But there, there, there's such a sort of... And we, you'd say it all the time, you know, I don't want that there because I, I don't want people, people to see that. So what people are we talking about? Nobody ever comes around anymore. Um, but that sort of envy of someone else's home like what someone else's house looks like on their social media has no impact on my house but that does play a big part in our sort of psyche doesn't it they're keeping up with the joneses exactly Uh, yeah definitely definitely it does it does up to a point i think that the arguments james makes actually stand and the aspiration too so we know that on right move the most sought after houses quite often you know over christmas when everyone's bored and clicking on where could i live are the hugely expensive ones you know the 60 million pounds 100 million pounds that is so out of most people's range that it's okay because it's fantasy it's just property but porn yes and then that's fine people think oh that's fine because that's not reality but as soon as you start, yes, having your side return done, then you know everyone in the street's got to have their side return done. <laughs> James looks confused about explain what a side return is. <laughs> it's it's in Victorian houses where you have a sort of L shape at the back you can build across now to make a whopping great open plan kitchen dining area. Which is what everyone wants. It's what really. everyone's doing. It's what everyone's doing these days. Wow. <laughs> I, 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 love, I love the pettiness of this stuff. A survey, um, a, a study I was reading, um, writing this column, it didn't, it didn't make it in. Was um, some social science researchers gave some kind of middle managers at an American, an American company this kind of desk pen display set, which had two pens in, and they came back a kind of year later. And there'd been this kind of arms arms race where every single middle manager had tried to get more pens and everyone had these kind of preposterous 10 pen desk sets that are all sort of done to overdo each other in this kind of measure of um, success, apparently measured in pens. Have you seen this in the the, uh, Keir Starmer interview in the Times today? He's holding three pens. That is a powerful man. <laughs> he's sending. He's sending some. I'm very impressed by that. Yeah, on pages. That's what, what I'm looking for. Yeah, look. Yeah, look. He's got three pens in his hand. That's how much. That's how decisive he is. He's got to, you know, he's, he's got to write so much stuff. Write so much. He's rewriting history. <laughs> uh, so much with his pens. Uh, James, I was looking at the comments under your column today. Yes. Um, and somebody, I liked this. I remember being little and visiting my grandmother in India and having to stand in her house while she shook, shook dried chilies over my head to ward off evil eye because she thought the neighbours would curse us because her grandchildren were, were from London, uh, were visiting from London. Interesting to think the emotion behind it is the same as Twitter pylons. As always, the young think they are different to the old, but they're not. Uh, and then somebody says, another brilliant column by my favourite commentator anywhere today. The fact that James is so, this good at such a young age is sickening. <laughs> Ironically, making him a potential target for the envy and subsequent moral fury of which you write so well. Well, uh, let's keep reading these kind of comments. Yeah. There's one actually that we I... We hate to... his hair with a passion. Under yeah, this, I, I noticed that one. And um, <laughs> it was actually, speaking of, um, speaking of uh, my sexiness and whether there's an... Uh, an um, <laughs> As we were. Whether there's a constituency for <laughs> on the internet. I was very surprised to read this. Um, you yourself, James, had a fleeting moment as a gay icon when you posed as a mermaid in these very pages. You're right about having to be careful about what emotions one stirs up. 
Um, but I've never posted as a mermaid, so I'm not sure where that came from. Oh, I've just Googled James Marriott mermaid and the hope of that appearing. Is that not something It's that's just happened? someone's fantasy. Anyway, sorry, I'm not sure I, <laughs> not sure I mentioned that. It's just... Um, <laughs> Just struck me as a weird thing that no, I found the below the line comments this morning. Is imagining James Marriott as a as a mermaid. I'm not sure where to go with that. I think maybe yeah, we sorry, I think that's maybe yeah. <laughs> move on altogether, uh, Carol. Um, let's talk about um, the new form of parental leave. It's an interesting story. This chief executive of co- uh, Co-op's food business taking a four month career break to help her two sons prepare for school exams. Um, on the one hand, you know, maybe it's quite good. You can duck out of your job for a bit to look after your family. I mean, I suppose it also, once again, points to the massive class disparity between people who can who work in jobs and can afford to take time off work to prepare their kids for exams and others who can barely, uh, you know, barely have the time to get their kids out of, out of school, what, uh, out of the house in time for school. What did you make of this, Carol? Actually, I liked it. I liked it a lot. And... Um... Without incriminating myself too much, I've been looking at, at job adverts and I've noticed that quite a few companies now have got something called life leave alongside holiday. So it'll say how many days holiday and then it'll say how many days life leave you can have. Um, and I think it's one of those things companies are going to have to consider, you know, with the great resignation and how we're all rebalancing work life. And I think we don't necessarily make it, oh, you've got you know, a month for when your kids have exams or whatever, but make it, you can have a month or so, maybe on on less money or something, life leave, you know, if you have to deal with a parent going into a care home or you, I don't know, you have to go to help your kid prepare to be merry in the school play, whatever it is, then I think actually I quite like it. It it, it goes to the sort of work-life balance. It's interesting that, so um, life leave, in these adverts, is that paid or is that sort of extra... And is it a one-off thing, or do you get it every year? I'm fascinated by this. I'm just writing. It. <laughs> just start. I just start writing an email to Big Boss Tim saying, "You know, I think we should all be having life leave at uh, times." Yes. Do you get so, yes, so you get what like your four, four or five weeks of actual holiday, and then life yes, leave on top? Then, yes. So it would say something like, "Oh, 25 days holiday, 10 days life leave." And, and you get that every off. year, and is it paid? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I have to state right now, in case the boss is listening, I haven't gone too far into this. <laughs> Very good. Very good. What do you make of this, Jase? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I'm all, all people having time off work. I think she can, you know, she can use uh, this time however she likes. I am a bit, it kind of ties into one of my perpetual bugbears, which is people taking exams way too seriously. And she's taking time off work to help her kids prepare for her, her exams. And I just think, is it that? I just think this sort of, all-consuming importance of GCSEs and A-levels and stuff, um, which which is a kind of perennial theme of my columns. I just, I think we're putting just another symptom of how much social importance is put in this stuff and the kind of pressure that puts on your kids that you're taking time out of your career to help them revise for their exams. It just kind of seems to say to them, these are the massively the most important things you're ever going to do. If you fail them, that's a disaster because I've put, I've, I've put my life leave into this project. And I just sort of, I really object to this kind of, obsession with exams and exams becoming these kind of all-consuming things. We should take them much less seriously. Everyone should revise much less. Everyone should just chill out a lot more about exams, which uh, I'm really unconvinced by. I think they should be done like spot tests. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. At random times of your school life, they'll just do a test, knowing that there's no, uh, you know, there's no prep. Yeah, and is it fair that if you're, you know, if your mum's the boss of co-op and is taking life leave to help you revise for your GCSEs, what if yeah. you haven't got that kind of... They all just, I don't know. I, yeah, blah, forget blah. it, forget it, forget it. There's, um, like, no more exams. No more exams. Uh, James is off to get his side passage done or whatever it's called. What's it called, the back? <laughs> side return. <laughs> his side return. 
There we are. Um, <laughs> lovely stuff. Lovely speech. That's Carol Lewis, uh, Deputy Portis Editor of the Times and Sunday Times, and James Marriott, the, the man with the most envious hair on the internet or something. <laughs> Uh, off to off to buy himself a mermaid costume. You can read uh, read the both of the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just give yourself a subscription. You know what they're going to go online. I'll first one of the Carol Lewis and James Merritt then. Of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the power of proximity. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Just like me, just like to be close to you. Yeah, in politics, proximity is power. Forget job titles. If you're the Prime Minister, everyone wants to be close to you. Uh, this week, new faces have been laying claims to desks in Downing Street, while old faces, some of Boris Johnson's oldest allies, in fact, have been clearing their desks and moving on. There's a new chief of staff, a new head of policy, a new director of communications, a new interim permanent secretary, all tussling for influence with the remaining political advisers and the long-standing civil servants. None of this, though, is new. So what I thought we'd do today is we're going to dip into the archives to hear from people who've worked for the last six prime ministers about what it's like inside number 10 and how the building works or doesn't. We'll hear from Jack Brown, the former historian in residence at Number 10 Downing Street and author of Number 10, The Geography of Power at Downing Street. And we'll also catch up with Oliver Wright, the policy editor of The Times, uh, who uh, has been trying to work out who is sitting where in the first, uh, in the latest, the latest iteration of uh, battles for desks inside Number 10. All right, let's kick off then. Let's take a listen to what the building is actually like, the other side of that famous black door. In this clip, we're going to hear from Caroline Slowcock, who was Margaret Thatcher's last private secretary, Stuart Wood, a foreign policy advisor to Gordon Brown, Gabby Burton, David Cameron's press secretary, and Jonathan Powell, who was Tony Blair's chief of staff. The door of number 10 opens magically just as you approach it because they can see you, literally see you coming. And uh, the image that came into my mind was uh, Narnia. 
when you go through the wardrobe and then you walk into this extraordinarily different world. You know, you think it's going to be a kind of small domestic building, but actually, you know, it just sort of extends and extends like a TARDIS with lots of different offices and, and places. Inside of Downing Street, is where it's, it's, a, it's like a slightly run-down Georgian country, country hotel. You know, it's, it's a little bit worn. It's very... It's not very amenable to a modern office uh, environment. It's got sort of rickety staircases, uneven floors, little cupboardy rooms. On the face of it, um, it's very prestigious, but obviously, in, like with so many things in life, the reality is a little bit less so. I can remember having to lift my feet up to let the mice go by. Um, and I was one of the lucky ones. I was above ground. You know, so many um, people were working in, in offices that were once, you know, cupboards under the stairs. So, so it's right that it's a... It's a pretty rambling office. Yeah, it's a completely inappropriate place to try and run a government from. I, I suggested when we first moved in, actually, back in 97, that we should not move in at all, but go to the QE2 centre and try and work out of there. We had people working out of bathrooms, people stacked five <laughs> to a tiny room. I remember we looked at moving out again because the building became completely unsustainable later on in Tony Blair's time. The building inspectors came to us saying the electric riser was about to burst into flames. So much power was coming through it that uh, they couldn't guarantee the building. So we started looking at moving out. And of course, this was towards the end. And Gordon Brown was looking forward to moving in. And he absolutely vetoed us doing any moving out because he thought it was a coup to stop him ever being able to occupy <laughs> number 10. Uh, that was Jonathan Powell there talking about Tony Blair having too much power. Uh, we also heard from Gabby Burton, Stuart Wood and Caroline Slocott. Let's bring uh, Jack Brown in now. Uh, morning, Jack. Morning, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. Um, it, just explain uh, how the building has changed over time and the different ways it's been used. Well, it's changed over time from a kind of very cheaply built, um, let's be frank, slightly rubbish uh, townhouse that was designed to be occupied by no one in particular, but was you know, eventually occupied by the Prime Minister. It's, it's, it's changed from being a residential property um, to one, uh, a place that is now the office of the Prime Minister as well, as well as a place for entertaining. You have a, a whole bunch of rooms in there that were designed for domestic functions that are now used for uh, official functions, whether that be um, staff and advisors kind of working away on policy or like the state rooms on the first floor, which are used for hosting people, or at least they are in normal times, you know, outside of a pandemic this is where you'd have your successful British sports teams coming in or your charities or people who've done great things and you, you host them there. So it's, it's the, the, the function has changed almost beyond recognition from when it was built initially in the 1680s. Um, and uh, I suppose the thing is technology has changed over time as well. Um, is it fit for purpose at all now, do you think? Well, there's something I really enjoyed some of those <laughs> some of those quotations, and particularly this idea of it looking a bit like a a kind of country house, right? It's a bit national trusty, where everything you look at, rugs and furniture, you go, "Oh, I'm sure there's a story behind that." You know, I'm sure that that's worth a few bob, but it is kind of falling apart at the seams a little bit, which is kind of you know this very British kind of historic house uh, type type vibe. The juxtaposition between that and the computers that people now work on and the kind of modern signs of a modern office is really quite jarring. You know, it's so obviously not designed for that purpose. Um, it's not got much open plan space. You know, the rooms are just too small. Uh, there's not a lot of glass. I think in a modern office, you generally can see where people are. But in, in number 10, you have to 
you know, try the door handle, pop your head in and say, oh, sorry, Prime Minister, you know, he's, he's in there talking to Putin and you've just kind of looking for someone to make a cup of tea. You know, it's very, it's very kind of, um, it's, 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 it's inappropriate yeah. <laughs> if it was to be built today. If you're doing it from is, scratch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it's got all this incredible history and it basically works. And I think that's why it's been kept how it is. Well, let's um, let's dip back into the archive again now then. Um, well, let's talk, look at where the Prime Minister actually works. You'd, you'd imagine the country's leaders got a big grand opulent office out of reach from the riffraff. But as Gabby Burton and Jonathan Powell explain, it's not really the case. David's office, you know, was a bit of a mess, if I'm honest. It was tiny. There was sort of, you know stains on the carpet there was kind of I always felt slightly not embarrassed but I think people were always very struck when they came in to meet the Prime Minister oh right this this is your office are you serious you know because if you go to let's say meet the cabinet office minister they've got sort of a Nick Clegg I think had a sort of tennis court it's huge Nick Clegg's office yeah yeah we didn't have anything like that because so I often joked in in Whitehall if you the smaller your office the more important you are in 1997 we had Tony working in the old Marcia Falkender room, which is a tiny room that looks over the garden. We couldn't think where else to put it. But there was no way of stopping people going in and out. There was no room outside, no place for a desk. and People just wander in. So we eventually moved him into the private secretary's room, which now become the den. Mrs Thatcher and Harold Wilson both worked upstairs, what we call the boudoir, which is a very sort of um, elaborate room of its own uh, toilet at the end of the room. Uh, but uh, we, didn't want to prepare. we also looked at moving Tony into the white room, one of those um, state rooms. But again, we couldn't see how it could be done and what would you do when you're entertaining there. It's really a very difficult building to work your way mm. around. So, Jack, um, recent Prime Ministers, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, David Cameron, have all used the same office, haven't they? Yeah, the, the room that's called, called uh, was called Tony Blair's Den, right? It's, it's right by the cabinet, the cabinet room. Historically, Prime Ministers used to work in the cabinet room at the cabinet table, but I think it's a little bit... Saying, saying in some of those those quotes there um, that that there's you know not a kind of grand office available. There is a grand office available. Prime Minister can work at the cabinet table, but they look they look sort of tiny and insignificant <laughs> compared to that. It's too grand. I remember there's a there's a great clip. Uh, I think Michael Cockrell interviewing um, James Callaghan, and he talks about how he used to love working there because when people came in, they had to sort of stumble around the cabinet table take them ages before they finally were able to sit down opposite him and uh then even then they were miles away so it's kind of like a power play but it's a bit a bit, a bit ridiculous if you're asking me <laughs> generally, generally, generally i suppose that's the thing isn't it that. because power power is such a difficult thing to put your finger on and and you know status and and, and the way that you impose that on the people around you is is really important and the prime minister is the most important person so so creating that sense of uh, you're coming into my gaff, and I'm the boss here. is is quite important, but obviously it's not just the prime minister, uh, you know, and where they sit. There's only lots of people um, working around them, and as the num the numbers have increased massively over the years, and it can be a bit of a tussle like, trying to work out uh, where to put everyone. Uh, here again is Jonathan Powell worked for Tony Blair, Stuart Wood worked for Gordon Brown, and Gabby Burton worked for David Cameron. When we moved Tony into the old private office. Uh, we then had to move out into what was called the duty clerk's room, which is sort of next to it, the outer private office. And you have, it takes some imagination to imagine quite how antiquated that is. You have a duty clerk sitting at one end of the room, <laughs> as an official who's there the whole time, and a little wooden um, dumb waiter. And all the papers come in downstairs to what we call the garden rooms, and they're brought up by this dumb waiter by a hand pulley into the room. 
And then you've got six people sitting there because everyone wants to sit next to the prime minister and you have to have the diary secretary and the foreign affairs advisor wants to be there. And it's almost impossible to work in those circumstances. How can you have a private conversation or how can you <laughs> um, really think? So that's the problem. It's the sort of all being squeezed in together. The desks were all assigned. We were told before we left, you know, you are on this room, you know, floor two room, blah, blah. Policy people in my, in my era, this is 10 years ago now, the policy people were on the second floor. The ground floor had the really important people. Um, there's an office at the back of Downing Street, which is the Prime Minister's office, which was Tony's office. It became Gordon's office and then Cameron's office. Gordon eventually moved out of the office. He didn't like it. And we moved inside number 10 to actually number 12 Downing Street. It's all continuous inside yeah. Downing Street between 10 and 11 and 12. And he experimented for two years with an open floor plan, which was, I think, had mixed success. It was just a horseshoe. <laughs> it was a yeah, horseshoe. the horseshoe table, which he was in the centre of, and then a satellite desks around there. I was made to sit in with my uh, opposite numbers, so Clegg's press people, and I can remember being really <laughs> off about that. What, in the press office yes. in number 10? so I was sort of, you know, our offices, were Andy Coulson, and uh, we were all down at sort of one end of, of number 10, and, um, and David said to me, you've got to, you've got to sit opposite, you've got to share an office with Lena. I said, well, I mean, I like Lena and everything, but I don't think that's going to work. He said, well, it's got to work, because if, you're, if you can't share an office and you're busy briefing against Nick Clegg, which I'm sure you wouldn't do, Gabby, but, you know, you just mustn't do that, otherwise this whole thing's going to fall apart. Uh, don't worry, that's not um, uh, Bell telling you it's 12 o'clock. That was doing an interview with uh, Gabby Burton in, uh, in Parliament, where bells are constantly uh, going off. Interesting that, though, Jack Brown, where she's saying that... Um, putting, particularly in the coalition years, just the very fact of forcing Conservatives and Lib Dems to sit together, creating a culture of working together. Um, again, that's really important. And who sits where and the mixture of political people and civil servants, uh, that really matters. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, one of the themes we're getting from some of this stuff is that people would take a kind of cramped, slightly um, down-at-heel room that is close to the prime minister, that is close to kind of shouting distance to, you know, being able to see who's coming and going, being able to pop your head in or have the prime minister's head pop into your room. That is preferable to having a salubrious and impressive office. You know, everybody wants to be close to the centre of power, which is generally in those rooms around, around the cabinet room. Of course, this depends on the prime minister's working style, though, because not every prime minister spends, you know, lots of us are working from home these days, or at least some of the time, and you realise every now and then you take the laptop into the living room for a little bit, you know, change the scenery. Some prime ministers wander a lot more. Um, but still, still, you, you want those, those rooms that are technically closest to the prime minister's office. They are the most desirable by far. Yeah, well, we'll um, we're going to pick up uh, on that in just a moment about um, people wanting to literally just sit as close to the boss as uh, possible. It's much early on time today. Speak to uh, Jack Brown, uh, the, the author of Number Ten: The Geography of Power at Downing Street. Obviously, lots of people moving into Number Ten, all trying to jostle for uh, position. We're talking about the uh, the politics of proximity, the power of being close to the Prime Minister inside Number Ten as they start jostling for desks. His latest new team. We've heard our Danish Street staff are packed in like in the building like sardines, uh, which that could cause problems when they try to get as close to the Prime Minister as they possibly can. This is Philip Collins, a former speechwriter for Tony Blair. We'll also hear from Stuart Wood, Jonathan Powell, and Gabby Burton. Authority within Downing Street really does rest on how close you are to that. There's a real pecking order that everybody feels. If you if your office is quite close to the Prime Minister, then you feel more important. It's not necessarily true, but there's something in it. 
So everybody was always vying for the, the small offices that are dotted around the cabinet office. I don't know if you were in one, Gabby, but um, I, I was finally got there. It took me a while, though, let me tell you. Yeah, so there's a real fight for the space in close proximity to the Prime Minister. So, particularly when you work for someone like Gordon, who I think it's fair to say was not a stickler for process. Uh, proximity was everything. Jeremy Hayward at the time was, uh, had an office right next to the cabinet room. Gordon's private office was next to the cabinet room. You felt sometimes like you should hover if, if you knew something was up in your area. It was almost like a, you, you wanted to be a bit of a bad smell. Just sort of lurk around a bit, hope that you caught someone's eye, and then they'd say, well, you better come in, it's your issue. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of hovering and definitely a lot of game playing to get on the right floor. Robin Butler used to say, yes, Prime Minister is actually a documentary, not a, a comedy at all. Uh, when we moved into number 10 in 97, the crucial question was where people sit, because proximity mm. to the Prime Minister is power. So everyone wanted to sit next to him. And you have to persuade some people that maybe the policy unit doesn't have to be right next door. It has to be a bit further away. Maybe the press office needs to be further away and so on. Um, and it's, it really becomes quite an elaborate negotiation. Unless you do it when you first move in, uh, it's absolutely impossible. It's a bit like security council seats, permanent seats in security council. You can't get rid of people once they're on there. Uh, and it's the same once you've got them in an office, they're going to fight to the death. You'll actually literally yes, have to pull no, them out you, with you their discover, it's like sort of the German sort of, uh, you know, towels on the desk. I mean, it was quite, you, I can remember people were putting their shoes underneath desks to try and reserve them and all the rest of it, so it does get a bit undignified. Was that Steve Hilton? Was he, uh... uh well, no, he, he was sort of obviously took a totally different approach. Actually, the thing that Steve tried to do when he first came in, which caused outrage and nearly a massive walkout, was he wanted to reform the lovely cafe, which is probably the most secure cafe in, in the world, which is um, in the basement of Number 10. And, um... He wanted to turn it into something ridiculous, like a smoothie bar. And, and that, that, there was absolutely no way he was getting that. So. That didn't exist when we moved in. There was no way you could get food in Downing Street at all. It was absolutely impossible. So we had to actually build that at one stage. So there was some food. People used oh, well, to well go done. out. And then you'd have... That was a great addition, Jonathan. <laughs> Probably the greatest innovation we made, yeah. Under camera, it was who got into the 8.30 and the 4 o'clock meetings. That was sort of quite important. And there was terrible jostling for that. And you, it used to reach, suddenly it would become this enormous out of control thing barely there was standing room only and then there would be a sort of we've got to cull this is ridiculous you know the entire office can't be in here so then it would go down back down to sort of you know the core group and then it would go back up again it was a sort of an endless project yeah, really. the feeling of being excluded from a meeting was was what people hated that that was absolutely the, exactly the right same in the government, government isn't it? it's not just yeah. true of number 10 uh, that was we heard there from caroline slowcock uh, gabby burton jonathan powell uh, stuart woods and philip collins um, but, you know, who gets to be in the meeting? Who gets to be in the room with the Prime Minister? We hear a lot about the gatekeeper, who's ultimately literally stopping. Who gets to see the Prime Minister and who doesn't? It's a hugely important job, particularly with someone like Boris Johnson. Uh, here, then, is Kate Garvey, a former aide to Tony Blair, used to keep his diary, and uh, Katie Perry, Director of Communications under Theresa May. We moved the setup of Downing Street around so that he wasn't either upstairs, where I think Thatcher was, and then John Major was in the cabinet room. These were big rooms quite far away from the operating private offices. So we actually took over a part of the private office so that I could then move my desk in front of that door that actually managed, meant I could gatekeep because actually it wasn't possible to do if you were nowhere near them. So um, so it, it was a tight schedule and, and we, who was in the room was important. We didn't like extra people, unnecessary people. That meant things would go on longer and you couldn't get to the decision you needed to get to. So I was pretty 
strict. I was mainly standing up throughout the day, uh, keeping people that weren't invited out of the room. I was I was firm but fair, I would say, and I, I, I was constantly putting my head round at the 30-minute mark, and I had to read him. I had to read, did he really want me to wrap this up? Was he being polite and saying I need more time? So I had, to, I had to take some decisions like that. But, yeah, I was constantly going in and keeping the show on the road. Under Theresa May, there was to be no hovering. Katie Perry remembers that a sofa outside the PM's office used by hoverers was soon removed. And it's made clear to you that you do not linger in this office. You are only to come when you are invited. And if you're not invited, you're not to come here. In the early days of the May regime, a small side office was commandeered by her chiefs of staff, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy. It became known as the bollocking room. And you knew that if you were asked to go in there uh, in the next hour or so, you knew it was not going to be necessarily pleasant. Occasionally it was pleasant and occasionally it surprised you and then it would be business as normal. If you had a team meeting in the bollocking room, then you really knew you were all for it. <laughs> That's Katie Perry work for uh, Therese May. Right, let's bring in Oliver Wright, the Times Policy Editor. Hi, Ollie. Hello. Um, what do we know about who's got what desk in um, in the new look number 10? <laughs> or are they still squabbling over that? I think they're still squabbling. It's, it's in a state of flux at the moment. It's probably the politest way of putting it. Um, so yesterday we had the announcement that um, Samantha Jones was going to go in on a temporary basis as this new um, permanent secretary in the office of the prime minister. Now, she had a... Uh, a long, quite distinguished career in the NHS. She's run various hospital trusts, but her her sort of experience of the sort of mechanisms and the workings of Whitehall um, are perhaps less than they might be. I mean, she hasn't been there that long. She's been the Prime Minister's health advisor, and now she's got to grapple over you know, the machinery of Downing Street, how it relates to the rest of government, and try and bring some sort of you know, order to a building which is, you know, chaotic at the best of times and is not an easy place to do business with lots of different separate rooms all over the place. Now, that appointment um, is fixed. She's on a she's on a six month um, uh, posting. After which, I suspect it's likely that she'll get the job full time. But under the sort of civil service rules, they can't just appoint someone. There's got to be an application process thrown open to everyone. So she'll do it on an interim basis and then presumably apply for the job. Uh, full time. And they've also approached um, a woman called Samantha Cohen, who um, is a previous assistant private secretary to the Queen. She was private secretary to the Duke and Duchess of Sussex for a while. Um, and they want to bring her into that, that gatekeeper role that was carried out originally under Teddy Blair by Angie Hunter. Kate Fall obviously did it for Cameron. And this is the person who you know, stands outside the room, decides who goes in there, decides what time <laughs> meetings finish and generally sort of cracks the whip. And they think that that, you know, she's got the experience to do that. And it's something that, you know, Johnson has never been great with time is, is manifestly lacking at the moment. Do we know that Steve Barclay with these multiple jobs, chief of staff, uh, minister of the cabinet office, and obviously still an MP. Mm. A debate about, presume, will he have a desk in number 10 as chief of staff? Will he still have his desk in the cabinet office as well, which is obviously yeah. attached, but some, some distance away? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is that um, he, you know, he takes Rosenfeld's place in 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 number ten and spends most of his most of his time uh, there. I'm not sure whether he keeps a desk in the cabinet office. I assume that he probably does, but certainly, you know, what they're saying is that you know he will be a proper chief of staff. But the point about 
um, bringing him in into that role is that because he's sort of slightly double hatting with the cabinet office, he can make sure that those two organisations work better together because you know they are they're connected um, and the cabinet office works directly for the prime minister. But all too often it's been a sort of slightly unwieldy fiefdom, and Downing Street hasn't really got control over one particular bit of the cabinet office, which not many people have heard of, but is is really crucial called the Economic and Domestic Secretariat. Now that is a bit of the cabinet office that effectively makes sure that the prime minister's writ runs across Whitehall. They do all the, the right rounds for policy to make sure that all the departments agree on a policy before it's, before it's announced. Um, they're the sort of, they're the sort of oil, as it were, that greases the wheels of government. And I think there's been, you know, problems there feeling that they're a bit disconnected from Downing Street. So the idea of Steve Barclay is that he could try and, you know, bring the cabinet office and number 10 sort of closer together and, and work more smoothly. Oliver White, thanks so much for that. Oliver White's the uh, policy editor of The Times. Keeping an eye on who's sitting where in number 10. Uh, we've got lots of messages in about this. Uh, somebody says, Matt, why are you getting involved with perpetuating this spin about how cramped it is in Downing Street? It's clearly designed to influence public opinion as to how difficult it was to avoid attending parties ahead of the fines being handed down. Um, I have to say, of all the things we're doing, offering an alibi for having parties is not what... What, uh, is not what we're doing. I just thought it was quite interesting. But, uh, Jack, if you're still there, Matthew Martin gets in touch, says, Number 10 sounds completely unfit as the home of our government. My question is, why did all these people who are explaining this to us now not do something about it when they could? Oh, it's a fantastic question, isn't it? I mean, Jonathan Powell kind of alluded to it. Uh, he, he thought, you know, we've got to move to a more modern office space and the QE2 centre around the corner is, a, a you know, the most convenient uh, local opportunity <laughs> can be found there but ultimately it's the lure of that front door it's the fact that there's this incredible history in there it's the fact that every single prime minister wants photo opportunities outside the front door and every single foreign dignitary wants the same uh, that the prime minister wants to sit at the around the cabinet table where the decision was taken to fight on in the second world war etc right that history that kind of soft power the incredible uh, fame of that front door and of that building it's iconic and it's historic and you can kind of almost feel it in the walls and I think this is why people make do I think there's one other thing though Matt as well tiny little spaces yes you can't have a private conversation but everybody knows what's going on there are good sides to having a really small team it's the opposite of a massive bureaucracy when no one knows what's going on and actually having a small number of people around the Prime Minister has worked quite well. So there's an upside to the downside. It's really good to speak to you. That's uh, Jack Brown there, former historian in residence at uh, Number 10 and the author of the book, Number 10, The Geography of Power at Downing Street. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.